0: John chapter 3, verse 22 to verse 36. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the more shameful things that pastors do is to compare ourselves and to compare our churches to others. And we can do that in one of two ways. We can do that in a boasting way. Or we can do that in dejection, uh, boasting if we think we or our churches are somehow superior, or in dejection if we think that ours are inferior. But Christians can get in on this, uh, this competitive approach to ministry as well as they, uh, boast about their churches or their favorite preacher. And we have this particularly 20th and 20, uh, 21st century phenomenon. Uh, there have been popular preachers throughout the ages, but now we actually have ones that we call, without embarrassment and without shame, we call them celebrity pastors. And these are the ones that have great followings. And uh, some have bigger followings than others, and those followings can be compared. And this is easy to fall into, and we find that even in the earliest days of the ministry, there was this temptation. And the followers of John the Baptist were trying to suck him into this competitive mentality about ministry. And his answers to that, that effort to get him into a competition are very profound and very instructive and very timely Uh, in all days, but uh, particularly this day. Now we have a new scene, and this is a new scene that takes takes us out of Jerusalem, and it moves us into the countryside of Judea. Uh, Jerusalem is in Judea, but this says he went into Judea, that is the countryside of Judea, in verse 22. And there uh, Jesus remained with his disciples, and it says he was baptizing. Now, this is the only reference we have to Jesus baptizing. Now, John sometimes makes statements, and then he qualifies them either immediately or he qualifies them sometime later. And we will see in chapter 4, verse 2, next week, it says, "...although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples." So he wasn't doing the baptizing himself, but it was obviously under his authority, his disciples were baptizing. And uh, this is not so surprising, because John baptized to indicate repentance and new life, so it's not surprising that Jesus' disciples would also baptize to indicate repentance and new life. But it says here that John was also baptizing. In verse 23, "...near Anon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized." So John continued to be popular... But Jesus was also baptizing, so we have two groups that are doing something of the same thing. Preaching and baptizing. And since we now have not one group, but we have two groups, that sets up the possibility for what? For competition. For rivalry. And that's exactly what happened. Now, there was a controversy that arose in this context in verse 20... Oh, by the way, look at verse 24. This is parenthetical. It says here, "...for John had not yet been put in prison." Now, that's that's interesting. It may seem just like an insignificant comment... But it's it's important because there is this question among scholars and among regular Christians, how do the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who have something of a similar perspective, and John, how do they fit together? And there are some that try to pit them against each other and say, John came along later and he was correcting those first three. But we see evidence in this verse and elsewhere that John was assuming the other Gospels. He was assuming knowledge of them, and he was meaning to complement them, not contradict them. How does this verse show that? Well, John mentions here, uh, the author John, that John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison. He never tells us later on that John was ever put in prison. He just mentions it as if we already know this. How would we already know this? Well, we would already know this if we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so, there is no competition here. He is giving us information that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give us. And the information we have here that he gives us, that they don't give us, is that there was a time, however brief it might have been, when John and Jesus were both ministering in Judea. If you read the other three Gospels, it says John is put in prison, and Jesus starts his ministry, as if it were simply a handoff and no contemporary ministry, and Jesus starts in Galilee. But John is saying, no, actually, it didn't start in Galilee. There was a time that wasn't reported in the other Gospels, and I'm filling that out for you where they were ministering together. So that sets up the situation of today. And in this context, with this contemporary ministry of John and of Jesus, both preaching, both baptizing, a discussion arose. In verse 25, Now, this was more than a friendly conversation. This could be a dispute arose, and actually it looks like the dispute arose from John's disciples. They were getting very zealous uh, for their master and for their teacher and for what he was teaching, and rightly so. But it says a dispute arose, we could read this, from some of John's disciples and a Jew. So it looks like John's disciples may have started this dispute... Uh, and it was over purification. We've seen this question before, haven't we? Do you remember in, the, in Cana of Galilee, there were, there were pots of water that were for Jewish purification? And then John comes along. And by the way, do you remember that Jews did baptize? They baptized when a non-Jew came to the faith. And that person would baptize himself or herself, take a ritual bath, and become a Jew. Um, but John was baptizing whom? He was baptizing Jews. So he was turning things on their head. He was saying he was saying Jews need to be made new as well. Jews need to turn from sin to God. And so this set up a competition between Jews who were who were zealous for their rights of purification and this new this new approach to purification, which included Jews turning to God. But these disciples also were concerned not only about Jewish purification, but also about this other preacher. And they go to John, and they say, Rabbi, verse 26, Rabbi, they don't even name him, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And the suggestion is, is, John, this is not good for your ministry. Shouldn't you do something about this because you're the one who was, was with him? And shouldn't you have something to say about this? It's obvious that they were, they were jealous for their master and they thought that he was being upstaged by this other one whom he helped get going in the first place. Now, here we get to John's answer. And John's answer is threefold. In verses 27 to 29, first he makes a general statement, almost like a proverb. That's a general statement that applies to him, it applies to Jesus, it applies to you, and it applies to me. And then, he gave them a reminder about what he had already preached. And then, he talked about his personal feelings about this situation of him getting upstaged. And, and let's look at these. The first, the first thing he says is in verse 20, twenty-nine. No, I'm sorry. We're at uh, twenty-six. At the end of twenty-six. No, twenty-seven. Here we go. Twenty-seven. John answered, "A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven." That's a general statement. To whom does it apply? It applies to John. John says, "Whatever I have." Whatever ministry station I have in life is given to me by God. I have what God wants for me. He also says, whatever Jesus has, whatever he's getting, if everyone is going after him, well, that's because God has given that to him. And that's a good reminder for all pastors. What is the ministry that we have? It's the ministry that God has given us. To us, and thanks be to him. What's the ministry that he down the street, that that pastor has? It's the ministry that God has given to him. Thanks be to God. But this also applies to all Christians. But not only, because not only pastors can be guilty of en- envy or despondency or pride, all people and all Christians can as we look at our lives and we look at other people's lives and say why does this person have that why is my station in life this way not that way this is the answer what's the what's the life that we have it's the life that God has given us thanks be to him what is the life that 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 person has That we may consider to be superior or inferior. What is the life that that person, the life that that person has is the life that God has given to him or to her. So what does that urge upon us? Contentment. What do we have? We have what God has assigned to us. That's the, that's the general statement that applies to everyone. And then he gives a reminder, a reminder in verse 28. You yourselves, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. This is the closest we get to John saying Jesus is the Christ. And he says, remember, what have I been preaching Remember my sermons, folks. What have I been preaching? I have not been preaching about myself. I have been sent to prepare the way for Him. Remember, I already told you this. Don't be surprised that people are turning to Him and away from me. That is what I said. That's why I was sent. And then, he tells how he feels about this situation. And he gives an illustration here. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the what? Groom. The bridegroom. In a wedding, who gets the bride? The groom gets the bride. What's the best man do? The best man stands there. What's the maid of honor do? She stands there. And they are there celebrating what? That the bride gets the groom, and the groom gets the bride. And they are thrilled with that fact. And here it talks about the friend of the groom. Now, the friend of the groom was something like our best man but had more responsibilities. Had responsibility to make sure everything went well in the wedding, and also the bride, uh, the friend of the bride, I'm sorry, the friend of the groom, the best man, uh, we have some indication that he was the one that actually delivered the bride to the groom. And so once he makes that handoff and gets the, the bride to where the bride should be with the groom, then he is happy because he has done his job and the groom gets the bride. And John says, this is how I feel, folks. Says the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Far from being jealous, far from being upset, I am thrilled that I have completed my task, the task of the friend of the groom, and I have delivered what was the groom's to the groom. And I am thrilled with my station in life. Now, he says then, at the end of all that, a phrase that would well serve as a motto Verse thirty. That's the. This is the conclusion. He, meaning Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now, that word "must" is a little bit ambiguous in English. We use the word "must" like this, like should. Oh, I must get to the store because I'm out of milk. I need to buy some milk. What's that mean? I should get to the store. But this must here is a divine necessity. He's talking about something not that He should do. He's not saying, oh, well, He should increase. I hope He's able to. And I should decrease. I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll try to. I, I really should try to do that. He's not saying that. He's saying with all the force that we can, we can insert into this word must, He must increase. He has to increase. Increased. He certainly will increase. And I, for my part, I must, I have to, I am destined to decrease. He's saying what must necessarily happen. And in fact, if we read the other Gospels, we find out that's what happened to John. John was upstaged. John was... Thrown into prison unjustly for preaching the truth. John was kept there as something of a plaything of the ruler for a time. For that ruler's entertainment. And then when that ruler's, Herod's, unlawful wife uh, saw her opportunity. Out of spite and out of malice, he she had John decapitated in the middle of a party. And then John was buried. He said, I must decrease. It was destined that John would decrease. That's what happened to him. And sometimes I think how great a man John was. And I think in my mind sometimes I imagine as people are in the kingdom, the consummated kingdom, and talking to one another, and if I were to run into John the Baptist and say, John, what did you do with your life? Was it a fulfilling life? Somebody might say, well, poor guy. He was, he was, he was treated terribly. And he was betrayed. And, and he, was, he was cut off in the prime of life. And he didn't have an opportunity to, to, to get to ripe old age and to have children and grandchildren. And poor guy. It just wasn't fair. But then I can imagine John the Baptist saying, what did I do with my life? I did with my life what God had destined me to do with my life. I, of all people, I prepared the way for the Messiah. So yes, John decreased, decreased on earth. But John is the one whom Jesus called the greatest of those who were born by women. But what about Jesus? John said Jesus must increase. And that's what happened to Jesus. John the Baptist's followers, they faded away after his death, and thousands upon thousands began following Jesus. And he was he was acclaimed throughout Judea and even Samaria and and Galilee and And even in other parts, in pagan parts, in Decapolis, and up in Tyre and Sidon, and down into Idumea. He was proclaimed all over the Middle East. And then He was lifted up, as John said. He was exalted. And in the terms of John, He was exalted when He was lifted up on a cross. And that's a perspective that's different in John and the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, it treats the cross as... As Jesus being cast down, humiliated, but John says he's lifted up. Yes, he was yes, he was killed. Yes, he was betrayed, but but that was his being lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself. But then he was lifted up even more than that. He was lifted up from the tomb. And then he was lifted up to the right hand of God. He must increase. And indeed he did. And he is at the right hand of God, reigning on over all people. Things. This is a great motto for ministers of the gospel to remind ourselves what we're about. It's about Jesus being lifted up. Nicholas uh, Nicholas um, Zinzendorf, he was a nobleman, and he was born in 1700, died in 1760. But he had a great impact on on missions, and he was part of the Moravian movement which was, uh, they were Protestants uh, over a hundred years before Martin Luther. Uh, not over hundred, but, but the century before Martin Luther. The Hussites and the Moravians, and he sent out, uh, was instrumental in sending out many missionaries. And this is what he, he told a group of missionaries. He said this, Remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the unbelievers... Instead, you must humble yourselves and earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinkers that blind you to every danger and every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. What was he telling missionaries? He must increase. That's why you're going out. So that He's lifted up, so that He increases. And as for you, you must decrease. Your job is to go out to preach the gospel, to suffer, to die, and then be forgotten. I had a good reminder of this a couple years ago. Sandy was with Mission to the World for 31 years. I was with Mission to the World for 28 years. And after about a year of being here, I received a letter in the mail. And it was from Mission to the World. And it said this, Dear Reverend Trotter, Mission to the World, I don't know the exact words, but it's something like this. Mission to the World is the the cross-cultural mission agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. And our coordinator, who's named Lloyd Kim, he's going to be speaking at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And if you would like to know more about Mission to the World, we invite you to attend and learn more about our ministry. And I thought, so that's how it is. (laughs) It's been only a year. (laughs) And I seem to be forgotten. But that looks like that's my job. According to John the Baptist. And in the words of Zinzendorf, preach the gospel. Die and be forgotten. That's our job. But this motto is not only for ministers. This motto is for all Christians. He must increase. And we must decrease, folks. That's our lot. Is to decrease. We will, my friends, decrease. <laughs> Some of you are before the prime of life. Many of us are on the other side of that. We will, my friends, decrease. We must decrease. And we will die and we will be forgotten. But if we live a life like John the Baptist lived his life of lifting up Jesus, of pointing people to Jesus so that Jesus would be known, so that Jesus would be exalted, so He would increase, we will have lived an excellent life. Let's put this motto over our lives. He must increase and we must decrease. Now, why is that? Well, in the first part of John that we saw last week, we had the words of Jesus with Nicodemus, and then it looks like we have the commentary of the author. And it looks like the same thing here. In the first part, we have the words of John the Baptist, and then picking up in verse 31, it looks like we have the commentary of the author. And he says, this is why this is the case. Let me comment on this. This is why we must decrease and he must increase because of who he is and who we are. And here we get the commentary, the contrast. He who comes from above is above all. By the way, this word from above, he who comes from above, this is the same word when Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born from above, which I think that's probably the better translation, because on the heels of that conversation with Nicodemus, we have this word again, and it very much means, not a, it doesn't mean again, it means above. He who comes from above is above all. And then it says that uh, later in that verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard and no one receives his testimony. And then in the second part of verse 31. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This is the contrast. Who are we? We're of the earth. We're born of the earth. We're earthly. And whatever we say, it's an earthly speech. We can't get above that because that's who we are. But in contrast, he who is above all... He who is above all, he, he knows of what He speaks. He speaks from heaven. And He has seen and He has heard what He says. He knows firsthand. I tell you many things that I know because I've been told those things. I've read those things here. I don't have any firsthand authority to tell you anything because I'm of the earth, as every preacher is of the earth. But there is one who is from above above all, and He speaks what He knows firsthand. He has seen. He has heard. That's the difference. That's why He must increase. That's why we must decrease. And then he goes on and says, well, no one receives his testimony. Here's another example of of the author making a categorical statement and then immediately qualifying it. In verse 32, the end says, yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, the qualification, whoever receives his testimony, so, so maybe not many at that time were receiving his testimony, but some and forever and, 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 and all time, those who receive his testimony, and here there's another image, sets his seal to this. Sets his seal to this. Stakes his life on this, that God is true. So think about this. Those who receive Jesus' testimony are saying, God is true. How does that work? Well, he goes on and explains. For he whom God sent, has sent, utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. So when we receive Jesus' testimony, and we say that it is true, what we are saying is, God has spoken through Jesus. And God's words are true. We are setting our seal on that. We are staking our lives on that fact. That God has sent Jesus, and Jesus speaks the very words of God. Because He's from God. He is God. Now, why is that? It says, because He gives the Spirit without measure. Do you remember? We saw that that the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on Him. And now he says that God gives the Spirit to Jesus. I think that's the right reading here. He gives the Spirit without measure to Jesus. So we can be confident. Since He came from heaven, He knows what He's speaking about, and He has the Spirit poured out upon Him without measure that what He says is God's Word and is true. Verse 35, "...the Father loves the Son." and has given all things into His hands. So He gives Him the Spirit without measure, and He gives Him all things. And by the way, this is another, another post-it note for your memory. We will go through John, and we will hear time and time again that the Father gives Jesus this, the Father gives Him that. And one of the things that the Father gives Him is the authority to grant eternal life. Verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's an expression, eternal life, that appears only one time in the Old Testament, in Daniel. But then, it appears all through the New Testament, particularly in, in, in John. And it's, it's, it's shorthand for life life of the ages and all the benefits that we have in, in the kingdom of God. All the blessings that God has for His people. And, and this, this shorthand, eternal life, really should get our attention. And this is something in which I think all humans are interested. Because we have two experiences in life, many experiences, but but two experiences that overshadow our whole lives. One is this, that our lives are short and our lives are difficult. Now, that's not the only story. We have, we have a lot of joy in life as well, and, and the benefits we have in life are, are, are amazing and astounding. But, but those two things haunt us all along the way. That our lives are short, and that our lives are full of difficulty. And so what do we long for? We, we have this built-in sense that we were meant to live that we were born to live, that we were designed to live, and everything out, everything in us cries out for life. What kind of life? Well, a life that doesn't end. And a life that's qualitatively better than the lives we experience now. And that's why this, this expression, eternal life, is captivating to humans. Because we immediately recognize the offer here of a, of a life without end, And of a life of the quality that our hearts long for. And and here we have that life offered to us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is obviously a summary statement. And let's, let's look at this summary statement here. The first part says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believe in the Son. That Son who was lifted up on the cross to die for sinners, believe in that Son and you will have eternal life. That's the first part. The second part says, whoever does not obey the Son, which means that belief in the Son leads to obedience to the Son. So those who do not believe in the Son and those who do not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, this verse offends people. But it offends people for different reasons. If we would go to many parts of the world today and read this verse, they would find it terribly offensive. But they would find the first part of it offensive. The part that says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They would find that shocking, they would find that offensive, and they would find that unworthy of God. Who would find it that way? Those who have suffered deeply in this life at the hands of others. And if we would read this to someone, and this person would say, I can't believe in a God like that because this person killed my father, raped my sister, and stole all of our property, and you're telling me that all that person has to do is to turn from sins, confess those, believe in Christ, and that person will have eternal life. I can't believe in a God who would do something like that. That's terribly offensive. But in the West, we're not offended by that part. Because we sort of expect God to do that. But in the West, we're offended by the second part. And in much of the world, they would understand the second part and say amen to the second part. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see light, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, we're offended by that for a couple of reasons. One, we don't understand this word wrath. We think it's, we think it's like our sudden anger when somebody cuts us off in traffic and we, we have this rage that, that, that is spontaneous and capricious. God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is tied to His law. And his law is tied to his character. So his wrath is the expression of justice against those who have violated his law, which is in accordance with his character. So it is not an optional sort of thing. It is the administration of justice. So we misunderstand, understand wrath. But we also, we also have made God into our image. We think that God should be an indulgent being, and that it's unworthy of him to punish anyone except perhaps a few of the worst tyrants in all of history. Maybe them, but he certainly shouldn't have any problem with decent people like us. See, that's more the the Western mentality, and so we are offended by the fact that God would administer justice to anyone. But I, mentioned that, that cultural difference so that we can see the relativity of our own offense at this. But I, but I want to say that, that both of these different rejections of different parts of this verse are creating a God who is not worth having. You see, if we want to have a God who is only justice, and not loving toward rebellious humanity, then why bother to worship Him in the first place? Because the game is over before we even start. Because not only those people are condemned by that kind of a God, but all of us are, with no hope of salvation. But on the other hand, if we have our our Western indulgent God, who certainly wouldn't judge anyone, then we have created a God who is not just. Who will say something but not stick to it. Who will, who will bend the rules when it's convenient for somebody else. And that's not a God who is worth worshipping either. But what do we have in the God of the Bible? We have a God who is just. He expresses His law, and He will not vary what He has said, because His law is an expression of His eternal character, and He cannot deny Himself. He will uphold His law. But that same God who will always uphold His law is a God who loves the world, and we've seen that the world is rebellious humanity. That same God who is just loves the world that is turned away from Him and trampled on His law. And how did He do that? This is the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, my friends. Because in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God has devised a way to uphold His law in all of its vigor and pour out His love on those who believe in the Son. Because when we look at the cross, we see two things. We see God's justice upheld in all of its rigor. And we see God's love for the world. This is the God of the Bible. A God who is just. And a God who is so loving that He would send His Son... That that son would give his life to uphold God's justice, to spare us from God's wrath, and to give us eternal life. That, my friends, is a God worth worshiping. Let's pray. Our oh God, we thank You that You did not bend the rules for us because then You would be denying Yourself. Nor did You leave us in our condemnation, though You might have, and quite, quite justly. But You, in Your infinite wisdom, sent Your Son who upheld Your law in all of its vigor and expressed Your love to all who will trust in Your Son. Oh God, I pray for all of us who hear this text today, And wherever this and other texts are preached this morning, that we would turn, that we would believe in the Son, and that we would have eternal life. And that You would be pleased to use us to take this message to the ends of the earth that others might hear and believe and receive. And we pray, O God, as we go out of this place, that that motto would ring in our ears and that would shine in our lives. Jesus must increase and we must decrease. And we pray in His name. Amen.